0: All right. Now, when I take these headphones off, I can hear a ringing sound extremely clearly. It's very high-pitched. When I put them on, I don't hear it. So it's not recording. So in terms of the recording, no, it's, (laughs) this is a very, it's not the refrigerator. I know I can hear the refrigerator too, but it's not, it's not that. This is like um, somebody playing the, the uppermost reaches of a glass harmonica. (laughs) <laughs> I, this is, uh, I, I have to say this is so much like something that would happen in this book that it's uh, a little bit eerie, to tell the truth, because <laughs> this is, it's loud. What I'm hearing is very loud to me, and it only happened in this, well, did I hear it on the way up? Maybe I heard it a bit on the way up. Maybe, Maybe I'm trying to think if I heard it on the way upstairs or not. You think you're going to pick it up? No, actually. We tried and Tommy can't. I he actually can't. I put it on my headphones, it goes away. I take take them off and it's crystal clear. I mean, this is so much like your book. It's very, very strange. And I'm not trying to, I'm not kidding. No, I know, I know. <laughs> I, <it was> great <laughs> It's not, I can't, when I put on the headphones, it's gone. It's not recording.
1: It's so about recording, and, and It's beyond, it might
0: be beyond the range. Can
1: you hear it with, light? Well, the trouble is I have this tinnitus in my so ear. Oh, I've had tinnitus,
0: too, and this sounds like super loud, booming, but high-pitched tinnitus. But uh, that's. it's not that, because it's not. it sounds very different. Anymore. Like, as I was telling Ann, it sounds like... Uh, somebody playing the upper reaches of a glass harmonica with a little wah pedal. God. <laughs> I
1: mean, it's, do they, about, why don't I just come in and sit
0: down and, Yeah, let's, uh, I want to interview whoever's making this noise. <laughs> <laughs> I don't blame you. would I'd like
1: to,
0: too. Well, this is, uh, well, I have to say this is a very auspicious start for, for things here, and uh, unless I can't get my machine to work, that would be upsetting. Okay, and I see. All right. Yeah. Okay, 10
1: minutes. I'll put my phone on your desk. Yeah, yeah, calls. yeah and I'll turn
0: Turn this guy off. Nighty night? Well, actually, I'm recording all of the stuff we're saying now. I don't know how much of it I'll use, but it's just so strange to have that be able to hear that, that. would be an interesting prelude to, an inter- to talk about I, the sound. It's a, a very. It. No, I want to talk about your book. Yeah. But I just think it's so It's so much in uh, harmony, as it were, with your book.
1: Yeah. All right. We, we probably out. aren't really alone.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, well, we'll talk about that once we get into the, in the interview here. Okay.
1: Um, I know what we seek. Back when I was going out in the woods, among the very few words that my visitors said to me in plain English were, have joy. But how do you find it? You find it by dropping the load of life, and with it arrogance and self-will, something that is far easier said than done from my own experience. We are here to live past our egos, but if we know our future, our lives will not shock us enough to be effective, or so it would seem. I suspect that this is the great difference between us and aliens who might be here, and there are likely some mixed into this bubbling stew of being, I would think. I think that they have been here a long time. They are probably the fairy folk of old and the silkies and the sylphs and the distant gods who once roared their civilizing instructions but have since fallen silent. The gulf between us arises from the fact that their souls and body forms are not divided like ours. Their consciousness extends across the entire spectrum of being with the result that bodies have an entirely different meaning for them than they do for us. We feel that our bodies are us. My name is Whitley Streber because that is what I was given at birth. But I was somebody before I had that name. I am still that person. All of us underneath our names are somebody more authentic. Personality is a device that is apparently designed to guide us into the sorts of life experiences that we need to have in order to further whatever mysterious quest we are on. The stakes are very high indeed. They are as high as stakes can get. Unless we can find ourselves before Earth ceases to be able to support human bodies in numbers, We are going to find our journey very rudely interrupted.
0: Whitley Strieber is the author of The Hunger, The Wolfen, The Night Church, Communion, Transformation, Breakthrough, The Greys, The Secret School, and 2012, The War for Souls. His new book is Solving the Communion Enigma. Thank you for joining me, Whitley. Thank you very much for having me. Now, I absolutely loved the title of the very first of the foreword, which was, let me look it up here, Reading as Mutation. Jeff Kripal's forward, yes. I, I just thought that's such an interesting perception of reading and because I think to a degree, reading uh, gets close to the core of everything that uh, this book hovers
1: around. Well, it does. Uh, the book is about... Uh, articulating and clarifying what is a fundamentally transformative change that is emerging among us and being imposed upon us both at the same time. And that title and Jeff's interest in the book uh, come from, the title of of his essay and his interest in the book come from his awareness that the book is so closely allied with that process that he feels is such an important process in the experience of being and in reading.
0: Now, uh,
1: one of the things that you
0: talk about and and that he says, and I think this is something that you're very interested in, is how even over the past 50, 60 years, we've been engaged in myth making. We've been in the middle of myth making, kind of in it's in real time. We're watching myths form. And I think that's a really interesting perception of these phenomena, which as as you and he say, the important part of the word of the of the acronym is unidentified.
1: Yes. Myth is generated out of the unknown. And therefore, the more change there is in the social milieu, the more myth will emerge. And this is why this is an era of extraordinary mythologizing, because there is so much around us changing, and we, every day, come across more and more unknowns. Just a few weeks ago, uh, some neutrinos apparently moved faster than light. Not a week later... Another impossible experiment was announced when diamonds were found to be quantumly entangled, even though they are at the classical size. That was supposed to be impossible. And a couple of months prior to that, a laboratory, I believe, at the University of Santa Barbara, managed to cause a small metal object to remain perfectly still, and vibrate at the same time. It is out of extraordinary discoveries like these that myth emerges. It's the uh,
0: human ability to appra- embrace opposing notions in our, in our mind. Things that that that. Su- nullify one another essentially with logic, that our ability to embrace those opposing notions, I think that gets uh, to the core of even these kind of uh, physics experiments.
1: Well, yeah, uh, that's right. And we find ourselves grappling daily at every level with questions that we can neither bear nor answer. This is what we live with in our world. This is what our world is and it has more this way now than it ever has been in human life. As knowledge has exploded and information has exploded, so have the questions. And it is the questions that challenge, derange, and elevate the mind <laughs>
0: the beginning of your part talks about, um, you know, the idea of mystery. You you kept having experiences after communion. Oh, yeah. And, and, and they changed in nature somewhat. And one of the things I have to say, having read this book, I came here to your nice neighborhood in Santa Monica. I got here a bit early, and I took a walk around the block. And I have to say that my experience doing that was much changed by virtue of your book because it allows us to see all the opportunities for strangeness in what is otherwise a very ordinary world i looked at that alley and i thought oh my god <laughs> there was a little there is a culvert with some boards kind of covered up covering up a hole and you know a little bit of overgrown uh leaves blown on it. And it just all seems very suggestive once we've read this book.
1: Nothing is ordinary. That's the illusion that we live in. And once you've gotten past it, then the world comes to seem much more like what it actually is. Now, uh,
0: you're, one of the things that, that interests me is this idea about UFOs as spaceships. This is always the classic idea that you know, there's another planet, and essentially that we have what we are being visited by are slightly uglier Klingons right. or Vulcans that have gotten their spaceships and drove in here, just like we might drive to work. Um, longer distance, maybe some better technology involved, but that's the that's the idea. And one of the things that your book suggests is that that just the rejection of this idea of spaceships is is. Because they couldn't be real because spaceships couldn't possibly come here over this distance.
1: It just seems uh, ludicrous. It's an innocent folklore, but uh, wound up in it is anecdotal testimony, which suggests the opposite. That, in fact, there are spaceships here. Both answers are true in the very same sense that the little object in the laboratory both vibrated and remained still at the same time. And I'm not speaking metaphorically now, both answers are really finally and absolutely true. And if you're going to ask me how I can say that, I'm only going to answer you the way I am answering myself, and everyone who listens to us has got to answer it the same way. You figure it out.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, you talk one. You talk about uh, a man named. Uh, we've seen a lot of different people who've seen UFOs and reported yes. UFOs. You know, Edgar Mitchell. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Edgar Mitchell wrote a.
1: A blurb for my book, in fact.
0: Absolutely. And, and he saw something in space that he couldn't identify. That's and, right. And But you, one uh, guy you, I, you on earth whom I've not heard of before is Dr. Paul Hill. So tell us a little bit about what qu- makes him so qualified and what happened to his report, which is fascinating.
1: Uh, well, it's an, a truly remarkable story and, a, and, a, and an instructive and rather frightening story. And I'll tell you this. Dr. Hill was one of the first NASA engineers, before it was even called NASA, when it was called the NACA, uh, it was, uh, he joined it. And he, a few years later, proceeded to have one of the all-time best-witnessed UFO sightings in history. He saw a UFO that was also witnessed by two pilots in a, in, a flying, in an airplane flying overhead, the object was picked up on radar, visually observed by him, a highly skilled professional observer on the ground, by two pilots, professional observers in the air, and its characteristics were. It was actually more than one object. Was were clearly identified, and of course, the man was flabbergasted. He had read about these things in the newspaper that were showing up over the Chesapeake Bay. This was in the early 50s. And he was fascinated by being an aeronautical engineer. He was, of course, just absolutely eager to get down there and see if he could see them. And this, is, this happened that night. It became one of the only cases in Project Blue Book that was described as unresolved. However, it is absolutely seminal. And it's not the only one that he had. He had a number of other UFO sightings as well. And he began to question what they were. What, why was he seeing these things and what were they? To him, they were spacecraft. It, in his book, it never crosses his mind that something very much more uh, challenging may have been underway. And he analyzed their motion. He figured out why they had certain characteristics in their motion, how it was that they were not aerodynamic, and he went went into it great at a great length. The book was called Unconventional Flying Objects, and he was sort of the uh, he described himself as the most hidden man in NASA, the unofficial UFO guy for NASA. When he originally brought his sightings to his supervisor, his supervisor said something that absolutely characterizes the tragic disconnect that this material seems to bring up in the human mind. His only response when this highly skilled professional sits down and tells him in detail what he has seen is to say, have you been drinking? That's it. And to me, that was a, his, a, a tragic moment historically because he could have said, oh, my God, let's take a better look at this. Let's get some equipment out there. Let's get some people out there. Let's really see if we can nail this thing down. But instead of that, he simply said, have you been drinking? And just a few days ago, I read a, an interview with the Astronomer Royal, Sir Martin Rees where he laughingly dismisses anyone who sees a UFO or reports a UFO as a crank. He doesn't even know that Dr. Hill existed. And NASA didn't want us to, because after Dr. Hill wrote his book, it didn't get published. In the book, it says he says he's going to publish it on retirement, because NASA has said he can't publish it while he's working. But then it didn't get published when he was retired either. He died, and his daughter found the book in the manuscript among his things. He had never even said anything about it to anyone. Someone said to that man, you don't publish this book, because if you publish this book, you'll lose your retirement, or something, something, some kind of threat. I don't know. That's what it came down to. The book was published uh, by a man whom I've interviewed on my radio program, Dreamland, uh, who ironically was in the publishing houses in Hampton Roads, Virginia, where he had his original sighting. <laughs> I love the way these <laughs> things tie together. So it's, it's an extraordinary case, and it is, a, it is ignored because it has to be. If you're going to say it's all a joke, it's all nonsense, all the people are cranks, then you have to pretend, as Sir Martin Rees does— that Dr. Hill simply does not exist.
0: Now, what this has to do, <clears throat> what this kind of reflects, and you talk about this, in a, a, about the mirror shattered, um, that these kind of incidents, and uh, uh, the, and there's a whole variety of them that we'll discuss, that something that violates our hard-won perception of what is real and what is the material world something that violates that, violates a kind of basic taboo. And I think that's a really interesting perception of, of why, why these things generate such a strong reaction.
1: Yes. The taboo is fundamental to our being, but there are ways of relaxing, uh, uh, surrendering, if you will, that you can find discussed in the works of the great mystics of Meister Eckhart, of the great Buddhist and Hindu teachers, the yogis. Uh, you can find it in St. John of the Cross, and uh, uh, alluded to in the Cloud of Unknowing. A certain surrender of expectation that in, causes you to begin to see this as indeed exactly what Shakespeare said it was, a stage. And we are the players, and we all play the same role. We're playing the fool on this stage. And frankly, (laughs) I'd rather take the exit and see what's going on back there where they have all those wires and curtains and things.
0: (laughs) One of the things I like about the way you write this book is that you weave in your own personal story. Yes. And, and I think that makes it, uh, this is in a sense a, a, a biography of Whitley Street
1: Autobiography, Autobiography, actually, yeah. yeah I it guess. is autobiographical, yes. Yeah,
0: a lot of it. And I think it's that's a very interesting approach. Um, you s- suggest that um, traumatized children have a better chance of experience being able to see something that doesn't fit in with the rest of reality. So I'd like you to discuss the the, the effect of childhood trauma, the, the, what is to a degree a, a positive effect
1: down the line. Well, yeah, it is a positive effect in some respects. Obviously, no one wants to experience childhood trauma. I certainly didn't, but in some way I did experience it. As I go on at some length in the book, Exactly what happened is unclear because when you're dealing with a memories from the age of five and six and seven of things that weren't supposed to happen, uh, you just simply don't have an adequate grammar. Your your mind could not assemble those memories in, an, in a meaningful way, and I point that out too. Uh, it's not possible. So what I remember and what actually happened are... Could well be two completely different things, but one thing is clear. From the way I lived and live now, the trauma was there. Something happened that cracked the cosmic egg. Something shattered expectations upon which I was depending for my notion of of the real in those days as a child. Something came into my reality and broke it all apart. And that, again and again, when Dr. Ken Ring, in his book about this uh, called, I believe, Searching Toward Omega, uh, he did a study, which Ann and I financed, uh, of a a, a small sequential study of people who have had these experiences. And the one statistical consistency in this study was that they remembered childhood trauma of some kind. And i concluded from that, since I do too, and Anne, uh, that, that it, the shattered expectations enable you to see more clearly into a reality in which we all are deeply embedded, but which we are trained by the very nature of our experience to ignore.
0: Now, you received some rather different training as a child. Tell us about the secret school and Robertson Air Force Base. And uh, I love some of these parts, too, because some of this stuff is kind of funny. You know, you describe yourself as an unruly child, I I can imagine.
1: Unruly is a very polite word compared to what actually happened. (laughs) I, I was... Uh, a really bad little boy, and gosh, I enjoyed it. (laughs) And I enjoy remembering it, too. I somehow managed to uh, saw the porch off of our maid's room when I was about four. And when she finished washing up and went out to go up to her room tired at the end of the day, the whole thing just collapsed on her. And my mother and father have always, always, all of their lives wondered how I had done it. I do too, all I remember is the spanking, I don't remember the sawing at all, but <laughs> in any case, that happened. Uh, but in those days, I was when I was five, I was in kindergarten at uh, Our Lady Our uh, S- uh, Incarnate Word College uh, on the campus of what is now Incarnate Word University in San Antonio, and it was a much smaller place, and there was a little building, a little red brick building that was a kindergarten there, stuck onto the campus. And I was there. And I had a little friction, what's called a friction toy, a little car, which you, if you r- roll it back and forth quickly on the ground, the wheels will get to spinning fast and it has a flywheel in it. And I, for whatever reason, stuck this thing, r- rolled it fast, I was sitting at the feet of uh, the very sweet nun who was our teacher and, 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 uh, and nurse, nursemaid, I stuck it up under her habit between her legs and it sucked up her pudenda. (laughs) (laughs) She leaped up and rushed away screaming. Soon another nun appeared. And then the next thing I knew, I was no longer going to school there. I was instead shifted to a... Camp uh, called Jack Toller's River Ranch Day Camp, which, as my mother later put it, gave you a little more latitude. (laughs) And uh, so, it was from there that I began to have these experiences that I write about in the book that are very difficult to remember clearly that apparently involved some sort of classes at Randolph Air Force Base. Now, I wouldn't have even put this in the book. These classes were were tr- frightening. They were not, you weren't being taught something. You were being altered in some way. Uh, you were, some kind of personality splitting technique was in use or something. I really can't tell you what. All I can rem- tell you is I can remember confinement, darkness, very loud sounds. Uh, getting sick all the time to the point where I finally, my immune system collapsed. I ended up in a military hospital being given glamoglobulin shots uh, instead of with my normal pediatrician and my parents were just beside themselves. Now, as I said, I wouldn't have even mentioned any of this on the theory that it could just be all some kind of nightmarish fantasy that's built up out of confusions about other rather innocent experiences in childhood. But another friend, a friend of mine, a dear friend, one of my oldest and dearest friends, when he read this, he said, you know, Whitley, I remember those people. They came to our house and they tried to get my parents to get me into that program and they would not do it because they thought there was something wrong with it when they talked about Skinner boxes. That's pretty scary. It's pretty scary. Now, you fast forward to the early 80s and suddenly... In a park in Tallahassee, Florida, feral children are seen by local residents. They call the police. It turns out that these children are running around in this park, being supervised in quotes by two gentlemen, whose name end up names end up in the public record. The children have really no idea even of their own names. They're dirty, and they they claim that they're being taken to a special school for smart children in Mexico. I remember going to a special school for smart children in Monterey. But why? No no one in my family ever made reference to it. No one living at this time remembers anything about me going to such a place. But I remember being taken there very well by my father. So what is this disconnect? What is going on here? The children the, in, uh, in Tallahassee, the, this story grew quickly and was of great concern because it involved possibly a kidnapping of a large number of children, five or six little tiny children. Uh, they were being badly treated, et cetera, and so forth. So the Justice Department began to investigate, and suddenly the Central Intelligence Agency swooped in and said, it's a national security matter. We'll take over. And... Uh, A congressman who was deeply concerned about it said, I believe, in U.S. News and World Report that it looked like what had just happened was that some sort of abusive activity had been swept under the rug by the United States government. So there's so much smoke there that somewhere there's fire. So however my paradigm was shifted and my, my expectations, however they were shattered in childhood they were shattered, good and proper. I can tell you that.
0: Well, there's a great scene in this book. There's lots of great scenes. I can see why you became a horror novelist because there's lots of great scenes that could just come right out of a horror novel. And one, and there are very the horror novels
1: were a relief.
0: <laughs> I imagine. Uh, there's a scene where you're taking... Into a room and in indoctrinated into St- the uh, the the love of Stalin, and this is yeah, <laughs>
1: that's really we were given bears and 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 told how wonderful Stalin was and stuff. It was very odd, but you know, in in retrospect, it wasn't. This, this was in about 1947 and 48, and at that time, remember, a lot of people still were hero worshipping Stalin and the Russians because everyone knew that they had played by far the largest role in the defeat of Hitler. And everyone also now knew how evil Hitler had actually been, even worse than we thought. Mm. And so, so there were plenty of people around in those days, just as the Cold War was beginning uh, who still loved Uncle Joe, as they used to call him, during World War II. And so I can see where that might have happened if such people had uh, gained access to some children. That it's, but it's, so it's not, that's not so odd as some of the other things that I seem to recall. There's another scene, too, where you saw a picture of your father. Standing yes. next to, it. tell us, what, this is really weird. It's, it it's really up. weird. I wish I, now, <laughs> now folks, I mean, you're, you're going to get a, you're going to end up with a question here that you can't answer, but you're going to want to, and just so, so do I. So if you can't answer it, please write me an email. Um, the, this is what happened. My father gave me a desk from his office, a nice desk, and he'd used it. It was too small for him, but it fit well in my room. And I was about 12, and I was becoming very bookish. And so he gave me this, and two men brought the desk to the house, and took it up the stairs and put it in the room. And it was jostled around plenty as it was being moved, of course. And so the first thing I did was open all the drawers to see if, you know, where I could put things. was—I assumed the desk was empty, but it wasn't empty. One of the drawers had a picture in it, an old Kodak, black and white picture, and I picked it up. And I looked at it, and to my astonishment, this is what I saw. There were two African men in fezes and soutanes, looking like they were sta- in North Africa somewhere, holding up a coffin. In the coffin, with his hands folded and his eyes closed, wearing a sh- actually a sh- what looked like a shroud, was my father. Now you know a 12-year-old boy is curious enough anyway i was a really curious little boy and i was absolutely amazed by this i looked at it and looked at it trying to think is it where did it where was it taken and it finally i decided it, it looked i mean you could see fuzzy detail in the background it it wasn't it did look like north africa so i went downstairs and i said to dad hey daddy I found this in your drawer, in the uh, drawer of the desk. What's where? What's this picture about? He looked down at it, tore it up into little pieces, and that's the last I ever saw of it. He never made a sound about it; was never referred to again at all. Uh,
0: I, I love all this. <laughs> hey, kind I like them apples. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> You talk a bit about uh, Hubertus Strughold and Operation Paperclip, I, and yes. I, I love Operation Paperclip. It's it's such, it's so Dr. Strangelove.
1: Well, it is. Dr. Strangelove actually was in Operation Paperclip. <laughs> That's how they got him over here, plus the arm. But in any case, uh, yeah, a lot of Nazi scientists were, were brought to the United States, a lot taken to Russia, some to England, a few even to France, uh, where they... It was hoped that they would continue research that they had been doing in uh, in in Germany because a lot of the research in Germany was very very advanced, especially in in areas like jet and rocket engineering and rocket propulsion, which we know about. And well, Werner von Braun was a paperclip scientist and came here from uh, to continue our our space program uh, uh, after he was. Finished with the V-1 and V-2 bomb uh, rockets. So paperclip was a big deal. And Hubertus Strughold had been an, a specialist in high-altitude medicine and much wanted by the Air Force, of course, because we were beginning to fly really, really high. And we were beginning to want a lot of knowledge about how to keep our pilots alert and alive and safe in high altitude environments. So Strughold was a peach and he was picked up and uh, they started this institute at Randolph Air Force Base. Only later he was honored by the Daughters of the Republic of Texas and given all kinds of awards because there was a strong, there's a strong in South Texas connection between Germany and and Texas because South Texas, a lot of it was settled by Germans as indeed my family were Germans. I come from a German family that's th- who settled in South Texas from, from Germany. And so there was a lot of good feeling there. Unfortunately, it was later discovered that some of the things he had done in Germany had been a little unseemly, to say the least, uh, putting people in hyperbaric chambers and simply simply uh, watching them as the pressure dropped more and more and more until they exploded or compressing them to the point where they their lungs collapsed. I mean, he was a monster. Uh, that wasn't known in those days. But it was in him. The ability to use human beings as test subjects. The psychopathology of his Nazi background was still in him. And he and the people working with him could certainly have harmed children in the interest of their studies. And maybe that's what happened to me and some of these other kids. I remember being there. In the interest
0: of national security. Always uh. in the interest of national
1: <laughs> You know, uh, a great American, uh, a socialist, uh, Not I'm not a socialist, but that doesn't mean... Everything he said and did was wrong. Norman Thomas, I once had a wonderful conversation with him when I was a boy. uh, And he'd come to San Antonio to speak. And I walked up after his speech and began to ask him some questions. We ended up sitting and talking together for hours. And he said to me, and I'll never forget it. He said, your generation is the generation in peril because where the secrets start the Republic stops, and this country's got cancer. The cancer is called secrecy.
0: Oh, isn't that?
1: <laughs> and so true now. Yeah, no, it's uh, the the secret. Uh,
0: the secrets are obvious. Oh, all around us. Now. One of the things I think that this book does really well, there's lots of kind of weird and disquieting stuff in here. And I think one of the things you're getting at in this book, those kind of little cores of this experience of this book, is what Freud called unheimlich, uh, the uncanny. (laughs) the, The uncanny, that's right. I think that that's really at the core of this kind of paradoxical experience of reality that you have, I think, every day.
1: I live in the uncanny. That's where I live. I'm in the uncanny. And so is Anne. <laughs> when, 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 we, when we came together, it became came really uncanny. We had a very uncanny life uh, in, in, in our early married years. And But, you know, we were so innocent. Uh, we just took these strange things that kept happening around us absolutely for granted and laughed them all off until finally um, the whatever it was and is that does these things just dragged me out of the house in the middle of the night, raped the dickens out of me, scared me half to death and threw me back uh, like 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 a minnow too big to sw- too little too little to catch and uh, I've never been the same since.
0: And this is your these are the uh,
1: communion experiences I'm referring the last one was the mm-hmm. communion experience. I was referring to the earlier experiences like when we first started, we're married first and we're living together in our apartment in New mm-hmm. York. Some very strange things happen.
0: I love those scenes in this book. Those are so great. I mean, they're <laughs> I really it. weird and surreal. Well, they happen and uh, they uh, are uh, weird
1: uh, and surreal.
0: I, I just can't I, tell you the, anything but the truth. We'll
1: talk a little bit
0: about the horse store because I think that is such an interesting... <laughs> the horse
1: store, <laughs> yeah. Well, we lived on 55th uh, between 8th and 9th in Manhattan in Clinton and between 7th and 8th on the north side of 55th then there was a little old building with a what had been a storefront for perhaps a hat shop or something back in the 19th century a little shop it was never anything significant I think it's gone now I I think the building has been replaced but in any case we used to walk past there quite often going back and forth to our one of our favorite haunts which was Doubleday's bookstore on 5th Avenue and 56th Street and We would see, every once in a while, sitting there in the window with a kind of curtain behind her, a young woman, not necessarily the same young woman each time, but sitting there on a chair, either looking very nervous and unhappy, or sitting there looking out with that too frank look that says come hither without actually saying it, and we thought they were prostitutes. And they had a storefront, so we Ann and I would laughingly call it the Whore Store. And one night, we came along. And you understand, we had no UFO thoughts. To talk. Nothing like that had ever even come up in our conversations in our life at that time. It was years before the community experience. And uh, there were... The curtain was flopping like crazy. The chair was on its side. There was no woman there, but there were these little blue men, midgets, rushing in and out from behind the curtain, and you could see a man in a suit trying to get out. And every time he would would come pull back the curtain, or his hands would come out, an arm would come and grab him and pull him back. We never, which scared us, and we never went down that street again. We, we, we deflected over to 56th Street or 54th Street from then on. We never passed that place again at night. There was something really frightening about it. It wasn't normal, and uh, we, uh, that was certainly chilling. Whatever it was was happening in there, but, but I can tell you another story about something similar that happened to a psychologist who was driving on the Grand Central Parkway in, the, in Queens on his way to the airport when he saw something very odd. He's coming in traffic, driving in traffic, and suddenly he sees an airplane coming toward him right down the middle of the parkway at an altitude of, he said, just a couple of hundred feet and getting lower. And he thought to himself, my God, it's going to crash into the traffic. It's landing on the parkway. They think this is a runway. And as it passed overhead, he saw that the engines looked like they were fake, like they were, you know, the whole plane looked fake. And he was absolutely flabbergasted. He couldn't imagine what in the world he had just seen. But then something else occurred. He noticed on the roadside a big lighted sign with symbols flashing past on the sign up, up, up on a little, little hill, a, a little berm on the roadside. And he thought, what is that? And he pulled over. And he saw there were other cars pulled over and people were getting out of their cars and walking in and, and standing in a circle on the roadside. And all of a sudden, this little man dressed all in blue walked up to him and looked up at him and said, you're not wanted. Get out of here. And the man was, the psychologist was frightened by this. He said this was not a clown or a little munchkin. He said this was a monster. And he got in his car and drove away. Then he read, five years later, he read *Community*. and he wrote me. But you see the connection here. Someone (laughs) seems to be capable of taking people out of life for some unknown reason. The fake airplane was there to deflect the attention of motorists so they wouldn't notice what the psychiatrist did notice. The psychologist did notice. And this all happens. It's like I'm talking about things that have to do with life on a planet that is not planet Earth. But it is. It's that we live in an enclosure. Charles Fort, the great discoverer and and chronicler of anomalies, said in, I believe, his book, Low, this is a barnyard. And he was right. There's a whole lot going on all around us of which we know nothing or choose to know nothing.
0: I've been speaking with Whitley Strieber. His new book is Solving the Communion Enigma. Thank you for joining me, Whitley.
1: Thank you for having me.